So my name is Danny Mindlin. I am an ER doc at Providence Alaska Medical Center in Anchorage. Um, not actually employed by Providence, and I should make that clear that number one, um, my group, uh, Alaska Emergency Medicine Associates, is independently is is contracted by Providence, and I'm I'm speaking today not as a representative of Providence, or for that matter, as as a representative of AEMA, but I'm more speaking on my own experience and my own views, and certainly the offensive views are entirely my own. Um, in terms of how we and I are doing with COVID, I guess there's sort of a couple of answers to that, you know, on, on one level, there is, you know, there's the personal of it. And a lot of that is what everyone is dealing with. It's, you know, we have two small kids and my wife and I are both in medicine and are dealing with, you know, our kids are still in daycare and there's COVID cases and we're grateful to have the daycare because otherwise one of us would have to leave work. And so, you know, there's all the stress on the home front. And then there's certainly there's a shift at work that's been a pretty sustained shift for you know the entire course of this pandemic and it's 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 varied in its intensity but the you know work especially in the emergency department is always a balance of fun and stress or fun and fear depending on what's going on mm -hmm. <laughs> and um I, I think the pandemic has really shifted that for a lot of us you know i think for most of us it's usually mostly fun and I think it's really become mostly stress a lot of the time. Um, so that's sort of the personal side of it. And then there's also this sort of how is the hospital doing with it and how is our department doing with it? And I would say, you know, I mean, our heads are above water. Um, we got, I, I want to say we got really lucky, but it wasn't luck. Um, I mean, Alaskans really stepped up um, and, you know, some of it was mandated, but a lot of it was really people doing what was asked of them. And, and if you think back way, way all the way back to April and May, we were trying to flatten the curve, right? And mm -hmm. I think that that concept was a little, you know, people said the words and we didn't necessarily make it clear what that meant, that like the area under the curve doesn't change when you flatten it, meaning like the total burden of disease that we deal with doesn't change, but you, you flatten that spike such that you don't drastically exceed our ability to deal with it and our available resources and our supplies. And we did that. I mean, really in Alaska, we did that. And I mean, I, I, it would be hard to express how indebted we are to our community for doing that and our, our gratitude that everyone really stepped up and did that. That's a really hard thing to sustain um, we did it when it was most critical. I think now we're, we're struggling a little bit more and there's, there's sort of more pushback and I, and I get it, right? I mean, businesses are closing, people have lost their livelihoods and it's a big deal. Um, but it certainly put some additional strain on the hospital and on the department. Mm -hmm. So last time I checked the number of COVID cases was over 900. Um, the number of, uh, current cases. Correct. Yeah. That sounds right. Um, I think, yeah. Oh, the daily cases, right? The you're talking about like the most recently. We're we're diagnosing somewhere between seven and eight hundred most days now, statewide. Okay. Um, it may be that it was nine hundred most recently. I actually have the dashboard pulled up, and I could probably tell you that if I spent a while um, staring at it. <laughs> Five hundred sixty-four new cases yesterday, um, and that's that's as of noon today, basically. Um, so that, that's a little better. I mean, we were consistently pushing 800 every day for, for several days last week. So this is a slight improvement. Although I, I would say that, you know, the number that's more meaningful to me is the test positivity rate. So when we look at sort of the number of positive tests compared to the number of tests that we're doing, 
um, generally speaking, we want to be below 5% and as low as we can be. For a while there, sort of post the big surge, New York City was maintaining below 1% pretty consistently. And there's sort of like any ratio, I mean, there's two ways you can change that number, right? You can decrease the numerator or increase the denominator. So you can do more tests or you can have fewer positives or both. Um, last week, um, and I, I apologize, my, I'm a few days behind on this, but last I looked was probably four days ago, Anchorage was at about 8%, um, and the Valley, the Matsu, was at about 19%. Oh, um, man. Yeah. So we were profoundly exceeding um, where we want to be. I mean, we want to be at zero, but, you know... Um, and I, I don't think that's reflective of a decrease in testing. I mean, I think if anything, testing has become more and more readily available. And we were testing aggressively around the Thanksgiving holiday because people were, for better or worse, were traveling. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's truly reflective of, of more cases. Um, and bearing in mind, too, that not everyone who has it is getting tested. We know that. that that's a given. Um, so we really, and, and, you know, my take on that is that it's, it's reflective of the sort of not being, you know, a consistent mask wearing and not being consistent messaging around mask wearing and a lot of local pushback. Um, and it, it correlates pretty closely if you look nationally that areas with, uh, with lower adherence to mask wearing do have higher test positivity rates and higher incidences. So there's this overall fear of the hospital being at capacity. How close are the hospitals to being at capacity right now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it, it varies day to day to some extent. Um, there, and you know, I have to be a little cautious about sort of sharing Providence's internal information that they've asked us not to share publicly that's made available to us to help us sort of deal with the situation. But the short mm -hmm. answer is we've gotten there. Um, there was a day last week that we had, I believe, 17 patients sitting in the ER waiting for beds, admitted, waiting for beds, um, three of whom were ICU patients. So there were no ICU beds available in our hospital. And um, so, so we're there. Today, we're doing a little better, right? Today, you look at the dashboard, there are ICU beds available, right? But, but when you get a little granular with that data, I think the picture is not so rosy. You know, you look at the dashboard and so oh, there's, there's dozens of ICU beds available. Well, sure. But, you know, we're not transferring sick patients to Bethel anytime soon. They have ICU beds and they're doing incredible work. And those ICU mm -hmm. beds are desperately needed. But, but sick patients from the Matsu are not going to Bethel. Um, if you look at the data for the Matsu, you know, for today's data, you look at how many ICU beds are available. I believe the answer was four. There were four ICU beds available in the Matsu because there's one hospital. In fact, I'm, I'm looking at the table now. There, there are 14 beds total. 10 of them are occupied. Um, and so, you know, you don't have much room. It doesn't take much of a bump to all of a sudden be overwhelmed. And I, I'm not privy to all of the planning that's gone on, right? Certainly they, they stood up the Alaska Airlines arena very quickly. Um, and there, so there is some room for overflow. There have been, my understanding is there have been some issues with staffing that. Um, but um, we don't we don't have a lot of room. I mean, that's the nature of being in Alaska, and it's not like this is a situation where we can necessarily count on being able to send patients elsewhere. You know, Seattle when things were looking really bad in the spring, Seattle was not going to be taking any patients from here because they didn't have room for their own patients. Mm -hmm. um, so we have certainly, in recent weeks, been at that point. Um, 
you know, it kind of depends on what your definition is of overwhelmed. You know, we are a, a big group of docs. We are a big department. But um, so I wouldn't say that we've overwhelmed the sort of provider availability. But you have to have beds. You have to have spots to take care of people. And you have to be able to do that in a way that allows you to still maintain some degree of isolation um, or your whole ER becomes one big COVID ward. Um, and everyone who is in there, uh, you know, every patient can be presumed to, to be at high risk of getting COVID from the patients that are there with it. Um, so there's certainly, you know, you know, there's an issue there in terms of just having the available space. And that's before you factor in the fact that there are huge numbers of staff who are out, whether due to active infection or due to exposures and having to quarantine. Is there anything that you're personally worried about? Um, in what sense? Well, there's a lot of conversations and there's a lot of talk about hospitals being at capacity, um, not wearing masks in public, things that the average citizen kind of talks about. Like, what are docs like yourself talking about? I, I think one thing that's been really disheartening for me is to see the incredible amount of misinformation that's out there. Um, you know, I... I try to stay out of the comment section um, of most <laughs> things I read. Uh, mm -hmm. But when you look in, in the popular media, you know, you read articles and you look at the comments and there are some themes um, that come out over and over um, that are just clearly incorrect. Um, you know, I looked at one the other day where somebody said, oh, well, you know, my test said negative for SARS. So clearly this is just testing for all coronaviruses. Well, no, the virus that causes COVID is called SARS-CoV-2. That's what that test mm -hmm. was for. Um, but there's there's not, you know, I mean, our, our scientific knowledge or scientific literacy as a population, maybe it's not where it needs to be, or maybe this is, you know, these are also just complicated topics. Um, but you legitimately see people saying, oh, this is just a flu. That's a, I mean, influenza viruses are a completely different family of viruses. But beyond that, I mean, you look at the 2019 to 2020 flu season and about 22,000 people died in the U.S., according to CDC data, right? Um, but we've had over 250,000 in less than a year from COVID. I mean, it's not, it's not comparable. I mean, when was the last time you saw refrigerated trailers parked outside the ER in flu season, right? Mm -hmm. Because there was no room in the morgue. That's not normal. That's not a flu season. Um, you know, one number that I have found is sort of, sort of translates that concept is the idea of excess mortality. You know, what are your excess deaths over a normal year? And that's taking into account that we've had fewer homicide deaths and fewer motor vehicle accident deaths. Uh, just looking at Alaska, we've had 180 excess deaths. 180 doesn't sound like that many in the context of this pandemic, but we're a small state, right? We're a state of about 800,000. So that 180 excess deaths is a pretty big number. And I think we also, we kind of tend to make this impersonal. Oh, it's just people with comorbidities. Oh, it's just, you know, high risk people. Well, those high risk people are, are people's family members. Mm -hmm. They're people's husbands and wives. They're people's kids, right? Small kids on chemo are high risk. And so I think the notion that like, well, I'm not going to wear a mask because it's just high risk people is sad. I mean, it's, it says something sad about our willingness to do things for each other. Um, and I get that people see this as an infringement on their freedom. I, I truly understand. I, 
but I still find it sad that we're not willing to do that for each other as a society. And I, I think it also neglects the fact that, well, you know, you wear your mask, you don't wear a mask to the store and I'm around you and you get me sick. Well, now I'm in the ER and I'm around those high risk people and I'm around people who don't have any way to protect themselves. And so you're not actually just threatening the people who are immediately around you. So the idea that, oh, those high risk people should just stay home also doesn't really hold water um, mm -hmm. because that's just not the way, you know, contagious illnesses work. I would say those are, those are kind of the big things. There's a lot of other, uh, there's the really <laughs> frankly insulting stuff, like the idea that, you know, this idea getting tossed around that doctors are getting $30,000 for each COVID case that's diagnosed. I mean, if that's true, I'm still waiting for it. Um, most of us have seen a pretty significant drop in our income, and I, that depends a little bit on payment models and stuff. And in the end, I mean, I consider myself lucky to have a job, and I consider myself lucky that my wife still has a job. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, patient volumes have dropped dramatically. Everyone is staying out of the ER, and, um, and that certainly has had an impact on reimbursement, but that's not really why most of us do our jobs, right? I mean, we're we're not still going to work because the money is that important to us. And so the idea that doctors are falsifying records because there's tens of thousands of dollars being paid out per diagnosis is, is insulting. I mean, it really is. And, you know, the CARES Act did include a, a 20% bump in Medicare payments, but you have to take into account the, this incredible increase in the cost that hospitals are bearing between sourcing PPE and getting more vents and standing up additional facilities. Um, you know, you look at dentist's office are actually having to institute PPE fees because there's so much additional cost. Um, and that's not, I mean, the CARES Act was hardly under the table, right? All that information is, is publicly available. Um, and I can say from personal experience that I have, I have experienced literally no pressure to inflate numbers or, you know, apply a COVID-19 diagnosis when there wasn't one. You know, this idea that, oh, you die in a motorcycle accident with COVID-19 and they're saying you died of COVID-19. And mm -hmm. I, I can't say strongly enough that that is nonsense. I mean, it's a lie. Um, and it's, it's an upsetting one. I mean, it's, it's personal, right? I mean, it's, it's calling me a liar as I'm going to work every day to try and keep people from dying of this. Um, it's, it's disheartening to come home and read that. You know, that is frustrating. I think at a certain point, you just have to ignore it and you have to carry on with your work. Absolutely. And we do. And we do, right? And that's, that's as I say, I try not to read the comment section. And that's, that's I think, good practice in life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, and I, I mean it when I say that, you know, we're, we're lucky to have a job still, right? And I am lucky to be healthy and I'm lucky to have had PPE available to me. Um, and I, I feel taken care of by our hospital and by my group and, you know, by our medical director. Um, and I, I do count myself lucky, right? And that stuff in, in the end is more important to me. Um, and I, I also, you know, I, I, my work is fulfilling and I enjoy it and I'm glad that I can be there for people. And that's why we all do this in the end. And you're right. I mean, that is, that is the bigger thing. So earlier you mentioned freezers outside of the ER, if I'm remembering that correctly. Does the ER that you work at have one of those? Yes. Yeah. Providence got a uh, refrigerated, like a, like a semi trailer. Um, and I don't know that it's still there because it was kind of in, I mean, understandably in a bit of an out of the way spot, um, like not immediately visible from the street, but, um, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. About a month ago, um, 
you know, and it's not to the level, I mean, New York City in August was a, a different matter, right? Um, it's having, <laughs> having lived in New York, uh, you need, they needed those. Um, here, it's obviously less of a critical issue, but, um, but yeah, absolutely. Do you think that people in New York, since they have a more like visible understanding of this virus, they can take it more seriously than, say, people in Alaska? Yeah, I think so. And I should say in the interest of full disclosure that I grew up in New York City and I went to medical school there and my parents still live there. Uh, my parents and my brother and his family um, still live there. So it's certainly, you know, the, the state of things in New York is, is kind of personal to me. And I've also been pretty closely attuned to it. And, I, you know, there is, unfortunately, this whole thing has become political. So certainly... For better or worse, people's political views are, tie into what they believe about the virus and what they believe about mask wearing and what they believe about its seriousness. But I, I do think that, yes, had we gone through what New York City went through and seen the absolute just decimation that some neighborhoods went through, we would be more consistently wearing masks and more consistently social distancing. Um, because it was frustrating, right? We see people come into the ER and say, oh, I haven't been going anywhere. I've been staying home. Okay, what did you do yesterday? Well, I was playing volleyball with my friends. I, this is a conversation I actually had with someone. I was playing volleyball with my friends, and the day before that, I went to the gym. And it's like, dude, you're like, you've got diabetes and high blood pressure, and by the way, COVID, you're COVID positive. Mm -hmm. Why are you out like playing volleyball with people in the middle of this? Um, and I, I think that's stuff that we're, yes, New York City at this point is as a whole taking more seriously because of that that collective experience. And I just looked this up because I passed it on social media and I was trying to remember the heading of this article in the Anchorage Daily News. And it is Palmer rejects mask mandate after three long hearings and hundreds of comments, many opposed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's, I, as I said, I think that's driving what was the other day, 19% case positivity rate in the Matsu. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and I... Look, Alaskan, Alaskans have an independent streak, right? Uh, probably uh, they're mostly independent streak and then some, some other stuff in addition to that. And I get it, right? And, and Alaskans as a whole are pretty resistant to being told what to do. Um, and it's part of like what makes this state what it is and what makes it such a cool place to live. Um, I do think it's worked against us a little bit because it becomes in this case, it has become really sort of a, a, a knee jerk. Well, I'm not going to do what I'm told uh, in spite of the bigger picture and in spite of sort of the facts on the ground. Mm -hmm. So we were texting the other day and you said that you'd like to talk about how we're slipping on social distancing due to COVID fatigue. Do you think that we already covered that or is there more that you wanted to say about it? You know... I think I'm I'm wary of sounding preachy because that's not how you how you how people hear you you know mm -hmm. and so I, I guess what I want to emphasize is that like I I do get it I mean I we're you know it's not just a phrase that we're all in this together and I, I see people losing their businesses right I mean it, it's Alaska we all know people who are small business owners and I I see that and I feel it and and you know what I'm tired of this too. 
I'm tired of it too. I would like, I can't wait for this to be over. Um, and so I, I, I really, I do get it. And you know, I look, I look at things like the CDC shortening the quarantine time. And I think it's a smart move, right? Two weeks is probably scientifically speaking, the ideal quarantine time, but people won't adhere to it. Mm-hmm. You can't have people out of work for two weeks. Cause they're just going to say, you know, the hell with it. I'm just going to go back to work. Whereas if you say, well, a week and a negative test gets us to like an 85% success rate, I'll take it. If that means people are more likely to do it, right? You have to do that math in terms of what people can realistically, what you can ask of people. Um, so I, I think that was that was a smart move. Um, that's that's probably the bulk of it. There was something else I wanted to say, but I now forget what it was. So talking about what people will and won't do, what are your thoughts on the vaccine and the fact that there are two doses? Yes, as you started that question, I remember that the vaccine was the next thing I wanted to talk about. So I'm glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I think, you know, the problem with this vaccine, and this is actually really important information to get out there, right? The problem with the vaccine is going to be... side effects, right? And it's not a problem in sort of a functional sense. We we know that this is going to happen, that probably 10, 20% of people who get it are going to have really pretty significant side effects, you know, severe enough to interfere with your daily life for a couple of days. Um, high fevers, headaches, body aches, injection site pain, like it's, it's not trivial stuff. We kind of hear that and we're like, ah, whatever, local injection site reactions, but no, that sucks. I mean, mm-hmm. that's going to put you on your back, right? Some a significant percentage of people are going to have really severe side effects, and we do worry about people getting that first shot and saying that was terrible. No way am I going back. I had a vaccine reaction. No way am I going back. Mm-hmm. And that's not. I mean, yes, you reacted to the vaccine, but really, what you experienced was your body's inflammatory response. You experienced your body saying, like, "Whoa, there's some stuff here that's not part of me." let me respond to that, right? That's what we're feeling when we get sick. And it's also an appropriate response to that vaccine. Um, but we do worry about people saying, well, I'm not, I'm not going to go back in three weeks or four weeks, depending on which vaccine it is. Um, and then, you know, life happens too, right? People's cars break down or people's kids have to quarantine and they have to be home with them, right? You know, stuff happens. So I think the more information we can get out there about what's expected and how important it is to actually adhere to this vaccine schedule, the better, because we don't know. I mean, we were talking about this today um, within our, our group, and we don't know what happens if you miss your second shot, how soon you can actually go back and get another one. But especially when supplies are this limited, it's really critical that if you've been, you know, if, you, if your place in line has come up, please, please, please go through with it. Um, even if the first time sucks, the second time may also suck. I'm not saying it won't. <laughs> um, I mean, we've, we've been told like, look, schedule this, um, basically find the day you're going to get it and make sure you're off for two or three days. And then also find the days three weeks out and four weeks out. Cause we don't know which vaccine we're going to get and make sure that you're off for two or three days, each of those times too. Um, just, you know, anticipating that we will not be able to go to work because of, you know, potentially really significant headaches and body aches and fevers and so on. Um, so it's, it's not trivial. Um, but I think the thing that gets forgotten is like, yeah, COVID's not trivial either, right? Mm-hmm. We have this sort of bias of saying like, well, I'm not going to get the vaccine because it could be really like unpleasant and it, it could, but I think the long-term unpleasantness due to the vaccine is 
far, far, far less likely than the long-term unpleasantness due to COVID because I know healthy young people that have gotten it and have been sick for months and have had to struggle to breathe, you know, active people that, that can barely walk a block several months later. Um, and that's even if they don't experience some of the complications like strokes and blood clots in their lungs and so on. So mm -hmm. we don't necessarily, and this is just like a human decision-making thing. This is just how our brains work. We just tend to forget that we are actually choosing the status quo, choosing, you know, where we already are is still a choice. Um, and we are still making the choice to, to take significant risks. And I, I think, you know, there's been a lot of misguided fear around the vaccine. And I, you know, a lot of what you hear people saying is like, well, we don't know what the, what the side effects are going to be. And that is true uh, in the sense that these vaccines have not been around for long. We have not had studies going out a year or two years for very obvious reasons. Um, that being said, if you look at how, so I should back up a little bit, right? There's sort of three vaccines that are sort of closest to, to being, well, two that are in the pipeline and one that they started giving this morning in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine are mRNA vaccines. And it's actually pretty interesting. And I, I, basically the way those vaccines work is they get your cells to actually produce one of the viral proteins and kind of show it to your immune system. And what I mean by that is that those vaccines contain mRNA. They basically contain sort of an early blueprint for the production of part of this protein. And then you're, you get injected with the blueprint and your cells know how to use that blueprint. It's the same as your own mRNA. Um, and so they take that blueprint and they build what's in it, which happens to be this spike protein that's displayed on the outside of the virus. And then your immune system sees that spike protein, recognizes it as foreign, and it generates an immune response. And that's sort of what you're feeling when, you, when you're feeling so lousy. Um, mm -hmm. And that's why I say it's your body doing what it's supposed to do. It's recognizing that spike protein so that if it actually sees the real thing, it is already primed. You already have antibodies. You already have immunity. It's able to rapidly and effectively fight it off rather than having to start from zero. Um, and there's been this worry about, well, is it going to alter my DNA? No. The answer is a <laughs> firm no. Uh, it, mRNA does not have a mechanism to enter the nucleus of your cell. DNA is in the nucleus. It is not going to alter your DNA. I, scientifically, and I say this as somebody with a, a degree in molecular biology, no. <laughs> um, and I get the fear, right? I, this is like uh, your average man on the street does not have an in-depth knowledge of this stuff and shouldn't be expected to. And that's why I think it's stuff like this conversation that we're having is so important because like this information needs to get out there. Um, the, um, the third vaccine, which is the AstraZeneca Oxford one is a little bit of a different mechanism. It's, it's an adenovirus that's been modified and adenovirus is one of the common cold causing viruses and causes some other common viral illnesses, but um, basically um, modified adenovirus to express a, a COVID uh, protein or a SARS-CoV-2 protein. So basically sort of the same idea, but very, very different mechanism. Um, and it's actually, I mean, in a sense, we're incredibly lucky that this happened now because this is technology that the, the mRNA vaccines, this technology didn't exist five or 10 years ago. We actually, mm. it was inconceivable to get a vaccine this quickly just a few years ago. 
And this happened at a time that companies were already working on this technology, like BioNTech in Germany was already working on this technology and was able to, because of this unprecedented international effort to develop a vaccine, was able to very, very rapidly repurpose it. Um, aided by the fact that the, the, the Chinese made the genome uh, publicly available back in January. So all the information that was needed was actually already available. It was just a matter of putting it into practice as quickly as possible. Earlier, you said that there are people who are worried about this vaccine potentially modifying or altering their DNA. Is there a vaccine out there that does alter or modify your DNA? <laughs> You're getting me into tricky ground. Not to my knowledge. Um, there is obviously a lot of debate. I was going to say healthy debate, but I don't know that that's necessarily accurate. But there's a lot of debate around vaccine safety. Um, some of this uh, has been debunked, and the people that are still holding on to the belief are not people that are convincible, right? So if you look at the links, the purported links between the MMR and autism, there is not a single paper supporting that link. The, the original Lancet paper was retracted years ago and that doc lost his medical license. Um, and there have since been there, no data. There have been many, 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 many efforts to establish a link, all of which are unsuccessful. Um, generally speaking, you know, vaccine safety is, we give vaccines because they're better than the alternative. Does that mean they're all perfect? No, no, it doesn't. Um, but uh, we give them because they're better than the alternative, right? And you look at the MMR, um, you know, measles, mumps, and rubella are devastating diseases, devastating. I mean, um, I believe it's mumps that at one point was the leading cause, before the vaccine was the leading cause of childhood deafness. And we just forget that, right? We forget that the reason we came up with vaccines for these illnesses is how awful they were. Um, measles is a legendarily horrible illness. Um, and so, you know, I will say that um, there is a vaccine injury fund, right? Like the, the VAERS, the, the vaccine, well, there's the vaccine adverse event reporting system. Um, and that's to allow us to sort of on an ongoing basis monitor the safety of vaccines and make sure that, hey, we haven't made missteps. Um, and then there's actually, there's a, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name now. Uh, but there is actually a fund for compensation of, of vaccine-associated injuries. Um, and I don't know offhand what the sort of requirements are for a payout. I don't know to what extent those injuries have to be validated. I think the bar is actually pretty low. And the goal is basically to say, like, rather than, than sort of have a chilling effect on vaccine production, rather than say, like, oh, we're going to have drug companies become unwilling to produce vaccines because they could be sued or we're going to have, you know, parents be unwilling to give vaccines because they're, you know, b because they have concerns about this being financially devastating. We at least have, have established a system with a low threshold that will will pay some costs that are potentially associated with vaccines. But I, that's a long answer to your question. The, the short answer is, <laughs> no, I'm not aware of any vaccines that are known to, we wouldn't give a vaccine that were demon that was demonstrably harmful. We would not give a vaccine that had a significant chance of altering your DNA. And the reason I asked that question was because I have no idea if there is a precedent for a vaccine 
that alters your DNA that people who may think that the COVID vaccine will modify your DNA can refer back to? No, I mean, we're not technologically, I mean, we're not at the point of intentionally altering people's DNA. Um, I think there's sort of, there are big ethical questions around that, um, even once you have that. Because I mean, I think technologically we're, we're getting there. From a bioethics standpoint, it's a, a much, much debated proposition. Um, so could we be there? You know, ask me in five years. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it's certainly not inconceivable with the current state of things, of, of science, that we could arrive at that point. But to date, no, we have not actually intentionally made sort of therapeutic modifications to people's DNA. Um, and that's, you know, that's a, a bit of a dangerous game to play. I want to sort of loop back because I, I did inform myself <laughs> a little better, but sort of about the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, um, which mm -hmm. is what I was talking about earlier. It is, it's a no fault approach. So basically what it does is sort of pay out without there having to be a, a judgment of fault. Um, and it was created in the 80s basically because there was actually fear of vaccine shortages due to lawsuits against vaccine companies and against healthcare providers. And there was also fear that that was gonna reduce US vaccination rates and cause these vaccine preventable diseases to have a resurgence. So basically certain vaccines are covered. Any individual of any age who got vaccine and feel they were injured as a result can file a petition. And then also parents and legal representatives can can file on their behalf. And then sort of a, a judgment is made. Um, the report is generated, that's presented to a court. And then the Department of Health and Human Services will actually award compensation if that's the judgment of the court. So I'm looking at this question and I think I might just shoehorn it in here. <laughs> shoehorn away, man. I've, I've already shoehorned enough of my own personal viewpoints uh, that, uh, that I can't blame you for shoehorning something in. So what do you think about this feeling of wariness of the vaccine because of how fast it was developed? I think even the medical establishment, even people who know a lot about vaccine development were surprised by how fast this went, right? Um, I mean, we're on new ground. The incredible amount of money that was thrown at this, the early availability of the genome, and the fact that this technology was already in development all really created this perfect storm for us to have this vaccine. I mean, if you think about the fact that we were getting first reports of this in January of this year, and we saw people being vaccinated this morning um, in December, mm -hmm. that is staggering. And even people who were well-informed on the current state of the technology thought it was going to be at least a year and a half before we had a viable vaccine, let alone three viable vaccine candidates, one of which is actually being administered. I mean, that is, it's unprecedented. It's, it's new ground. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, any new thing is going to be reasonably somewhat scary to people. Um, and I think particularly when you're talking about something that people are putting in their bodies. Now, do I think it's reasonable to say that Bill Gates is putting microchips in the vaccine? No. I mean, that to me is like a, is a little bit tinfoil hat, right? But, um, <laughs> but I do think that like, yeah, this stuff is scary. And that's why I say like, I think it's an important part of, of my job to like get correct information out there and to say like, hey, this is fast and that's not scary, that's cool. That's an incredible amount of work done around the world. Um, and we've also been helped. And I think, you know, it, the more you understand why it was fast, the less scary it becomes. The other reason is that things were happening concurrently. 
So um, vaccine development was occurring. And at the same time, the U.S. was committing to purchase doses of vaccine. Um, and production was actually beginning during the trials. So while Pfizer was doing their trials, they were producing millions of doses of this. I mean, that's how you get from phase three trials to administration of the vaccine in a matter of weeks. It's because they knew they had a promising candidate and they, you know, they bet all their marbles on it. Um, they said like this, we're, we're going to put our resources into this. The U.S. government did the same thing. Um, and I, I have not been overall, I mean, I think there have been major holes in the federal response to this, but this is one thing that was really done well um, and, and is now paying, it's about to pay, I think, huge dividends. Um, but they didn't wait to say, okay, is it safe? Now we'll start producing. Or, okay, is it effective? Now we'll start producing it, right? Because phase one is, is it safe? Then is it effective? So there's, you know, they still followed the sort of approved processes. Everything was accelerated, but but they did all of these safety trials, we're talking about tens of thousands of patients, um, but they really moved very, very aggressively, which gave us the ability to be sitting here in you know, early December uh, with people getting vaccinated. Um, and it's, it's been, that's the result of an incredible unprecedented effort. So and we made an unprecedented effort and we got an unprecedented result. That's, that's the goal. That's why mm -hmm. all this effort was made, right? Um, and you know, the damage that's done by people not getting vaccinated is also, I mean, incredible, right? You talk about the damage to, to people's livelihoods, never mind the elective surgeries that are getting delayed and the routine healthcare that people aren't getting. Uh, you know, we're, we're not necessarily, you know, we've had to put off the testing that can tell us if somebody is at high risk for a heart attack in the next few months. We've had to, you know, vaccination rates are dropping because uh, mm -hmm. kids aren't making it to the pediatrician. Um, all this stuff has effects, so there are huge, huge downstream effects. And when we say, like, well, I'm worried about side effects of the vaccine, I sort of return to that point of, like, yeah, but there's also huge side effects to not getting it. Um, not even side effects, just effect effects. You know, this wariness about the COVID vaccine seems like it gets back to the scientific literacy point that you brought up earlier, or I guess lack thereof. Yeah. And I think, you know, it sounds kind of judgmental when I say it that way. Um, and it's, it's not intended to be right. I mean, everyone has different areas of knowledge. I think one unfortunate outgrowth of the social media age is that everyone has their Facebook MD, you know, it's mm -hmm. like everyone reads one thing and sort of feels like they have become well informed. And unfortunately, there's a lot of incorrect information out there. And so people are trying to inform themselves as best they can, and they should. Um, but the information that's available and the information that's readily available is not always the best information. And that's amplified by, you know, what gets the most clicks and sort of you want something that gets a lot of clicks, then Facebook amplifies it in their algorithm and et cetera, et cetera. These things sort of snowball. Um, and that's how you get to things like these, these claims of, you know, doctors are getting $30,000 per patient. Um, so yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, everyone would sort of be be well informed about what we're talking about here. Um, but the stuff's complicated and it's confusing. And I, I don't think it's reasonable for me to say that, you know, everyone should be sort of conversant with the difference between an mRNA vaccine, the adenovirus vaccine, or, you know, a live attenuated virus vaccine. Um, that's just, that's not their job. That's my job. You know, what I think is also important is for us to remember 
that there are professionals in certain industries that know more than we do. Like not everybody knows everything and not everybody can know everything, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's also kind of emblematic of our time. There's this like distrust of authority, right? There's a distrust of um, sort of perceived elites and there's a distrust of scientists and there's a distrust of the mainstream media. Um, and it, this sort of, you know, verges back into what I was saying before about how this has unfortunately become politicized. Um, I, I think, you know, it's sort of seen as like, oh, if you're, if you're listening to the mainstream media, then, you know, wake up sheeple. But, um, mm -hmm. and I, you know, uh, kind of being tongue in cheek, but I'm kind of being literal too. And so I, I think there's sort of gotten to be, and I want to be careful about how I say this because I, you know, I, my goal is not to offend by any means. Um, cause I think that's, you know, that's kind of productive, but, um, I think there's this idea that if you're questioning the establishment, then you are necessarily being smart and you're in the know. And I think sometimes like, no, we ought to be listening to experts, right? We ought to be listening to people who have made their careers out of caring about this stuff and knowing about this stuff. And I would never, I say, you know, having, as I said, like having a four-year degree in molecular biology, an MD and a four-year residency, um, I would never take my own opinion over that of an infectious disease specialist or a microbiologist or someone else who has done specialized training in this because I, I defer to their greater knowledge than mine. I am on this stuff. I mean, I'm on the treating end of it, but I'm I am a novice. And I think the sort of, you know, the more you know about something, the more you're able to recognize how little you know. Mm -hmm. um, the, there's this uh, fun concept in psychology called the Dunning-Kruger effect, but it's basically that, you know, th it's exactly that. It's that you sort of, as you learn more about something, you start to realize how much more there is to know about it. Um, and so I think we're sort of seeing that it, it is the effect of sort of, uh, you know, the, the baseline lack of scientific literacy in the sense that people don't necessarily have a great grasp of just how complex this stuff is and think that reading a couple articles actually gives you a, a good foundation in it. And I don't think I, as a practicing physician, I, I know that I could know so much more about this. I have a, a basic foundation in it, but there's so much more to know. And I think that recognition is sometimes lacking. Do we know anything about COVID now that we didn't know a month ago or two months ago? Yeah, I mean, we know about a lot of things that don't work. <laughs> we have tried, you know, there's been a lot of stuff that's been tried and hasn't worked. I think especially when you compare to early, you know, sort of the early days of the pandemic, sort of March, April, May, um, a lot has changed. What hasn't worked? Sure. Um <laughs> I don't know if you're dragging me into the political side of this, or I'm dragging myself into the political side of this. Um, hydroxychloroquine, <laughs> hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin have not worked. Uh, that is unequivocal. They have not worked. Um, remdesivir, eh. Uh, and I'm being a little generous, but I'll give it an eh. Um, number needed to treat is high. Benefit is low. Um, steroids are kind of a, also a meh. Uh, the short answer is that we really, I mean, medication wise, um, we don't have much still. Uh, there's one that I'm going to butcher. I, I believe it's bamlanivumab. 
Bam Lanivimab. You edit that so it sounds like I knew how to pronounce it. Bam Lanivimab. <laughs> um, but basically, there's some evidence that if you give this medication to high-risk people with mild illness, they're less likely to progress to severe illness. But again, you have to treat a fairly high number to get a very, very slight benefit. Um, and that's sort of the exact opposite of a profile that we want in a medication, right? The lower your number needed to treat to get a benefit, the better. So if I treat one person and that person always benefits, that's great. That's an NNT of one. You know, an NNT of 15 or 20 is much less impressive, um, especially if that benefit is very slight. Um, so in terms of medications, we don't have that many great options. What we are realizing is that early on, we were we thought we were doing the right thing by being really aggressive with airway management. Uh, or not, you know, airway management is sort of the, the term of art, but, but basically intubating people. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we were, people were coming in looking pretty comfortable with SATs in the 70s and getting intubated, or they were working a little bit to breathe and getting intubated. And we've realized that like people with COVID really don't do very well on vents. Um, they spend a long time on the vent. They're very difficult to get off of it. Um, and it tends to, they're, they're really very, very tricky to manage on a vent. You spend a lot of time with event settings, often to very minimal benefit. Um, so we have become a lot less aggressive. We're doing a lot more um, non-invasive ventilation. And that means um, things like the CPAP machines that people wear at night for sleep apnea. Um, that's actually a modality that we'll use in the hospital and even that paramedics will use uh, in the pre-hospital setting. Um, that gives people a little bit of sort of, it lessens their work of breathing. It gives them a little bit of uh, positive pressure as they breathe in so they don't have to do all the work. And um, importantly, maintain some positive pressure when they breathe out to actually keep the, the alveoli in their lungs from collapsing. Those are the little, the little sacs in your lungs that actually perform the oxygen exchange. And when your lungs are all gunked up and infected and full of these inflammatory molecules, they have a tendency to sort of snap shut and get stuck shut. And then they can't participate in oxygen exchange. And so what we realize is that there's, there's big issues with alveolar recruitment, with sort of all those alveoli snapping shut. Um, and we really help that by giving CPAP or its cousin BiPAP um, and we've also been doing a lot more, and I don't want to get too much into the weeds on it, um, unless you want me to, but, <laughs> uh, but basically by, by being less aggressive, by giving respiratory support that doesn't rise to the level of intubation, um, mm -hmm. we actually keep ourselves out of trouble a lot that way. Um, also the, the widespread adoption of proning of actually putting patients on their stomach, um, has really helped with that alveolar recruitment, um, and has actually made a, a big, big difference in outcomes. And we will you know, have awake patients prone themselves. And you can send people home and say, look, if you're getting short of breath, lie in your stomach for a while. Um, and that's actually going to, in a lot of cases, help people's work of breathing. And, and, you know, now in this era, when people are checking their own pulse oximetry at home, you'll actually see people's pulse ox come up very significantly just by proning. And this is stuff that took a while to figure out. Why does laying on your stomach help? Uh, you know, again, it's that alveolar recruitment, right? So you're you're basically offloading your lungs a little bit, I and mean, especially um, because obesity is so widespread. You lie on your back, and your stomach pushes up on your diaphragm, and your chest wall pushes down on your lungs. And you're, every breath you take, you're actually fighting gravity. And I'm, I should say that I am I am not a pulmonologist. I'm not an, an ICU doc, and I'm certainly not an expert on alveolar recruitment, except to the extent that I need to be. 
but yeah, it actually is just physiologic. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's sort of basic physics that you're just manually offloading some of that, that work of breathing. Um, and it actually allows you to keep some of those alveoli open better. So again, with the shoehorn question, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> how do you think winter is affecting the response to COVID if at all? Um, you know, it sort of depends where you are, right? Um, in Alaska, I think, you know, we get through the winter by socializing, by gathering at each other's homes, by sort of, you know, when it's dark out, we sit inside by a fire and we have people over and, and that's been, you know, that's really important to us, right? Um, and I think that resisting that urge has been really, really hard and it's put pressure on sort of our willpower in a way that we didn't so much have to deal with in the summer just because there's so much so much more outdoor recreation. Obviously, there's still a lot in winter and there's still a lot that you can do to sort of remain socially distanced and ski with friends or fat bike or you know, walk or what have you. Um, but that takes more significant changes, I think, to our normal patterns of existence. And so that's, that's hard, right? Um, and winter is not a time that's known for being really, really good for your willpower if you're somebody who's at all affected by the, the loss of daylight, which so many people are. Um, there's also sort of the, just the, there's the fact that, you know, most sort of viral illnesses, I mean, there's a reason there's a flu season. Um, and yes, it is that we are indoors around each other more. There's also the fact that um, viruses tend to stay viable longer and stay airborne longer in cold environments. Um, the droplets take um, longer to disperse and actually the, the virus doesn't die as quickly. So you tend to see higher rates of infection with things like flu in cold weather. So, I, you know, it's, it's hard to tease. About. In the context of a global pandemic, it's hard to tease apart what the impact is of any one factor because mm -hmm. um, we're doing the experiment in real time and we don't have a control group. Um, so... It will we'll know more about it in retrospect. Um, but yeah, I mean, the impact's not trivial, especially when you take into account the holiday season and people traveling and, you know, college students coming home. Um, there, there's a reason that we're in rough shape right now. And I think the fear, too, is that, um, you know, there's all this talk about Thanksgiving being really bad and there being a sort of post-Thanksgiving surge. And there's a lag, right? There's a lag as college students come home and then they get family members sick and then, you know, those family members get other people sick and then some proportion of those have severe illness. And so when that doesn't materialize right away, sort of in the popular consciousness, it's like, well, they said we were going to have a Thanksgiving surge and we didn't. So what are we also worried about? Um, and then maybe a month later, you all of a sudden start seeing that Thanksgiving surge. And by the way, it's Christmas and those wheels are already turning. And mm -hmm. so I think we're, we're certainly still at a precarious time. So now that we're in flu season, how are the flu and COVID patients being tested differently? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. I mean, so the clinical presentation can be really, really similar between flu and COVID. And that's driven a lot of sort of the popular notion of people saying, well, oh, this is just another flu. And I, to some extent, I mean, in milder cases of COVID, you really, it's hard to tell them apart clinically and you have to test for both. 
I would say most of us have not been testing super aggressively for flu because we're seeing so much COVID that when that's the first test you reach for, um, it so often comes back positive that you're, you're kind of done, which isn't to say that you can't have both flu and COVID, but when there's so little flu in the community, um, then that becomes pretty unlikely. Um, and so it makes more sense to go for the obvious answer first. And someone who's really, really sick and struggling to breathe, that's just not a presentation that we see that often with flu, whereas it is a fairly standard presentation with COVID. So it, we're not necessarily, again, going immediately for flu testing. In somebody who, you know, has compatible symptoms and is COVID negative, totally reasonable to do a flu test. And sometimes we'll do those concurrently. You can run them on, on the same swab in a lot of cases. So we do one swab and test for both. But again, I mean, you know, sort of coming back to that notion of test positivity rates, there just isn't that much flu out there. And the assumption has to be that that's because we're social distancing and we're masking and we're doing all these things that work just as well for flu, if not better than they do for COVID. Um, because, you know, you look at those case positivity rates, and again, I, I mentioned earlier that in Anchorage the other day, we were at 8%, and the Matsu was at 19%. Nationally, if you look at the CDC data, which is available, I believe, on a weekly basis, um, we are currently at 0.1% positivity for flu, which suggests that it's not a problem of under-testing. The issue is, it, it's not that we're not seeing flu because we're not testing for flu. We are testing. It's just not really out there. Um, this has just been a very, very, thus far, and it, I don't want to be premature, but so far this has been a really uh, limited flu season. Um, and again, my assumption has to be that it's because of all the stuff we're doing due to COVID. So I've been staring at this question for a while, and I've been wondering when I can kind of, again, shoehorn it in. <laughs> <laughs> and since we're kind of nearing the end here, I think I'm just going to go ahead and ask it. So I'm not sure if you've encountered this before, but how do you or how would you respond to someone with COVID who doesn't believe in COVID? Oh, that has happened. Um, we, there, we have had critically ill patients who do not believe in COVID and continue to not believe in COVID while hospitalized for it. Um, it's a delicate question. You know, I mean, I, you don't get anywhere by alienating people. You don't get anywhere by treating people like they're stupid. You don't get anywhere by flat out telling people that they're wrong, even when that's what you believe. You have to meet people where they are. And ultimately, I mean, what we do clinically is, I mean, it's not that it's unaffected by what patients believe. I mean, if they're completely unwilling to receive any treatment for COVID, okay. But as I said, I mean, most of our treatment is really practical, right? Most of it is treating for respiratory distress we don't have a lot of really effective ways to treat coronavirus per se. Um, so it's, you know, yes, the, I guess if you refuse COVID treatment, you're not going to get remdesivir, but I think you're probably not doing yourself that much of a disservice in that case. I find it surprising when it happens that somebody is gasping for air and, you know, pretty desperately ill and, you know, on the point of being intubated and refuses to believe in the thing that they have, but it happens people's beliefs are deep seated and they're hard to change. And in the end, we're there to take care of people, right? So I am, it sort of doesn't matter in practical terms, why you think you're sick. If, if what you need is respiratory support, what I'm going to give you is respiratory support and you can refuse it certainly, but we don't, 
I don't take care of people based on my agreeing or disagreeing with them. Um, my job is such that I have to take care of a lot of people I disagree with. You know, I have taken care of people with swastika tattoos. I have taken care of people who are spewing all kinds of, of racist stuff at the nurses that I work with every day. I mean, this is, you know, part of my job is taking care of everyone. That is mm-hmm. why most of us went into emergency medicine. It's certainly a big part of what I, why I went into emergency medicine is I don't worry about whether someone is insured. I don't worry about um, really anything except the fact that they are walking into my ER, being rolled into my ER in need of my help. And that's my job and it's my privilege. It's, it's really what makes what I do so, so great. And as I said earlier, so fulfilling. And so if you roll into my ER and you are struggling to breathe and you say, I don't believe in that COVID crap. Okay, fine. I'm still going to take care of the struggling to breathe part and where you end up on the COVID thing. I mean, there's sort of, there's the sort of public health minded part of me that says like, well, we need to all believe in it and we need to wear masks and we need to socially distance and we need to get vaccinated. And then there's the clinical side of me that says like, look, if you're in my ER and you're in need of my help, you're going to get it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So getting back to the vaccine, Mm -hmm. is there a rollout plan for when the vaccine is eventually distributed in Alaska? There is. Um, I could answer that question better next week um, because there, uh, there's actually going to be a statewide presentation by Ann Zink, who's our state chief medical officer, um, that's actually going to address that exact question. But the short answer is that Alaska has been pretty good about going by CDC recommendations. And the CDC, as most people probably know, the CDC came out last week and said that healthcare providers and um, nursing home residents were going to be sort of the first phase. So what we're looking at, and again, as I said, we don't know which vaccine we're going to get right away. Um, but we're looking at um, probably about a week from today um, to be getting our, our first doses. And it's funny to be, um, I mean, I think of myself as young, I'm, I'm 35. So to be a fairly young, healthy individual, to be in like the first, you know, sort of at the head of the line of people getting this vaccine. And I kind of felt bad about it. And then I said, wait a minute, This isn't because anyone cares about me per se as an individual. It's because I'm a piece of critical infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm getting this vaccine so that I can keep my butt in the hospital taking care of people. And so it really alleviated a lot of my guilt about being sort of one of the first people to get it. And I also think there's, there's some messaging value in people looking and seeing, you know, doctors lining up to get this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think, you know, has there been erosion of trust absolutely but i i maybe i'm flattering myself but i think people still by and large trust doctors and i think you know understand that we would not put something in our bodies that we knew were suspected to be seriously harmful so i can say i'm gonna my plan right now we are anticipating having vaccine available december 14th and i have i'm planning on december 17th um and i will happily record myself getting the shot so anyone who wants to can watch um it's uh it it really is just the most important thing that we can do right now so it's safe to say that you feel fine you feel good about getting the vaccine about receiving the vaccine i will get it my wife will get it my kids will get it um and i have a, a three and a half year old and a one and a half year old and as soon as we get to that point and you know like Thank God my kids are healthy and they're not going to be anywhere near the front of the line. And that's just fine. Um, but yes, we're, I absolutely feel good about it. 
do you have a plan to take days off for potentially being sick? Yeah, yeah, and I kind of touched on this earlier that um, our, we were specifically told to allow a couple of days, so to pick a date to get the vaccine when you knew you didn't have to work for a couple of days. Um, mm -hmm. So I happen to be off the 17th, 18th, 19th, so great. I'll get it the 17th. I'll have a couple of days if I need to, to moan and insist that, you know, I'm sick and everybody has to take care of me. And then <laughs> um, I'll get better and I'll go to work and then I'll get my next shot um, in mid-January, early to mid-January. Well, this has been great, Danny. That does it for all my questions. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, I don't think so. I really, I appreciate you humoring me and my many tangents. I think, like I said, it's, it's so incredibly important to get good information out there. Um, and I am always happy to answer questions if people write to you, if there's stuff they want to know, if we, um, I mean, it took us long enough to, to arrange a time to talk that it might be uh, old news <laughs> by the time we get to it. But if we want to do a follow-up and sort of answer people's questions, um, I can always phone a friend if there's questions I don't know the answer to. Um, but I truly think it is so, so, so important to address people's fears because that's the only way we're going to get anywhere. Like I said, we have to meet people where they are. So I really just appreciate the opportunity. Well, that's great, Danny. It's been great talking to you. Hey, thank you, Cody. It's been a pleasure. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Thanks to Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives for their support at the company man level. This conversation was written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.